You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodores Kane, Kenway, Hefei, Jennings, Drunken Dak, Two-Gun Tony, The Pirate Nopales, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. And I'm pleased to introduce our newest Commodore, Redbeard the Smoky Mountain Pirate. I didn't see Captain Redbeard when I visited the Smokies recently, which may be the second time I've missed him, and of course our quartermasters, Samuel and Adam. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Today we're going to look at the origins and early years of the Dutch East India Company. In doing so, we will be setting out on the last leg of our voyage with the East India Companies, nearing the end of our look at the East India Companies. However, we're never really going to be done with the English or Dutch East India Companies. Any of the East or West India Companies, really. They're going to be here from here on out, menacing pirates and privateers from Australia to Madagascar to Nassau. They're going to be a major factor in the story from here moving on. In the West Indies, the story of the Buccaneer era of piracy is kind of akin to the Wild West, and I mean the really Wild West, the pioneer era when fur trappers and prospectors would ride out into unknown territory to forge a life far from civilization. However, the stories of the Wild West that we all know and love, you know, cowboys and Indians and gangs of outlaws and robber barons, all of that is more akin to the high golden age of piracy. There are shades of Jesse James and Billy the Kid in the stories of Edward Teach and Bartholomew Roberts, and all of that has undertones of Robin Hood, of course. And the thing that all three of those archetypes have in common, aside from romanticized, dashing anti-heroes, is a theme. A theme of common people struggling against the oppressive weight of incoming civilization of a progress that's going to leave them behind. It could be a story of Saxon bands of merry men robbing from Norman lords, or it could be a story of pioneer cowboys fighting against the land-grabbing railroad barons and oil men, or it could be a story of plucky privateers fighting a guerrilla insurgents against the aristocratic merchant empire of the 
faceless company. And, you know, in 500 years, we'll probably have highly romanticized tales about the space buccaneers operating in one or another asteroid belt. It's an ancient story that is told over and over again. And in our version of that story, moving forward, the companies are going to serve as our antagonist. Like the Sheriff of Nottingham, or the Sheriff of Tombstone. Not the villains, really, the pirates are still plenty villainous, but the antagonist. And while I think about that, while we're here, you know, in those Robin Hood or Cowboy and Indian stories, there's always a greater antagonist. You might have to deal with the Sheriff of Nottingham or the Sheriff of Tombstone or Amarillo or wherever you are, but there's always something bigger they could call in. Nottingham could always call on Prince John to send in the army. The Sheriff could always call in the U.S. Army, and in our story, moving forward, the company might serve as our primary antagonist, but there's always the possibility, if things get bad enough, they'll call in the Royal Navy. This is episode 129, A Tempest of Strange and Uncouth Violence. I'd like to look at a character. I was, in fact, ready to move on with our story, but it was this single player that convinced me to hold back and tell this tale. If you wanted a representative of these burgeoning companies, he very easily could be their face. The way he viewed the world and the policies that he made based on those views were going to shape much of the 1600s. He's not a king, he's not a lord, but his actions impacted people all across the world, people who would never know his name. And I wonder how to describe this man. The description that jumps to my mind comes from a piece of fantasy fiction, not Tolkien in this case, but a piece of fiction called The Gentleman Bastard Sequence by Scott Lynch. The hero of that story, a man named Locke, has a run-in with the local lord named Stragos, and Scott Lynch describes Stragos in a way that resembles the real-world character in question today. He writes, quote, A man of late middle years, surely nearing sixty if not already past it, a strangely precise man with squared-off features. His skin was pink and weathered, his hair a flat gray roof. In Locke's experience, most powerful men were either ascetics or gluttons, Stragos seemed neither, a man of balance, and his eyes were shrewd, shrewd as a usurer with a client in need. End quote. That's what comes to my mind when I look at a painting of the man in question today. The historian Stephen R. Bone describes that painting in his book Merchant Kings when companies ruled the world and does a much better job than I could. He writes, quote, the man stares from his portrait with rigid, self-righteous indignation. Sleek and manicured, Jan Pietersoon Cohen was a man of impeccable grooming, from his slicked hair to his neatly trimmed Van Dyke beard, from his coiled mustache to his expensive clothes. He stands erect and stiff, almost regal, while his left hand grips the handle of a sword. His lean and hungry face is dominated by a large, hooked nose and eyes that do not betray a shred of humor or liveliness. They do not hint at warmth, forgiveness, humanity, 
or empathy. Overall, the painting conveys an impression of humorless arrogance. End quote. Bone goes on to describe one event that encapsulates perfectly the remorselessness of a man like Jan Pietersun Cohen. Cohen was fostering the daughter of one of his associates, while his associate was back in the Netherlands, a girl of twelve named Siarte. Cohen discovered Siarte in the arms of one of his soldiers, a boy of fifteen. Cohen's initial plan was to drown Siarte in a tub of water, but he was talked out of killing his foster daughter by another of his men in favor of a public whipping of this twelve-year-old girl. The young soldier, though, was beheaded that very day. Cohen was cruel and harsh. He was, more than anything, unforgiving. He was one of the most powerful and influential men of the early 1600s and the architect of the Dutch East India Company. He didn't found the company, but he made it the powerhouse that it was going to be. He came from a relatively well-off background and was educated in Amsterdam. Then he was apprenticed to a merchant, maybe a relative, off in the city of Rome. And while there, learning accounting and the ropes of being a successful merchant, he picked up some Italian and Portuguese, some French, Spanish, and Latin. And I imagine that he picked up a fair bit of English as well, but he was never known to lower himself to speaking it. Cohen hated the English, which is a bit odd, considering that as the Puritans were rising to prominence in England, Cohen shared a lot of views with them, despite being a Calvinist. He hated adultery, he hated alcohol, he hated anything that was sinful, but not because, as the Puritans believe, it distracted from God. Cohen didn't much care about that. He hated sin because it distracted from his one true love, the hunt for profit. I don't think it was the money that Cohen loved. He wasn't greedy, exactly, but it was the hunt for money and the power that that money gave him. Anything that got in his way, including drink or adultery in himself or his men, and those dangerous emotions like empathy and compassion, had to be quashed. Cohen was there in Amsterdam as an employee and representative of his family's company when a coalition of Dutch companies decided to join forces under one umbrella. Remember all of those separate Dutch companies that were busy competing with one another in the East Indies for the spices that were available there? Well, they were about to unite under the umbrella of the United Dutch East India Company. We would call them the VOC. It was the unification of dozens of companies, but also the unification of the Dutch East India trade as a whole. They in the Netherlands, held a monopoly. They were the only organization allowed to trade with the East Indies, and if you wanted in on that, you had to join their ranks. And to ensure that it would be truly unified, not just a coalition of Amsterdam merchants, they wrote a charter with relatively equal representation throughout the Netherlands. 
They had a limited number of governors, and they limited the number that could come from Amsterdam to eight. The governors of Amsterdam would be unable to hold a majority. They still held half the seats on the council, though. The other eight seats represented a revolving series of states and provinces in the Netherlands, but in that fashion, everyone had the opportunity for a voice. Cohen was on the earliest of the Dutch East India Company voyages to Southeast Asia, and he was present when a Dutch admiral oversaw the signing of a contract, a contract that gave the Dutch a monopoly over all of the nutmeg trade in the Spice Islands. Now that contract was signed by a leader on the Spice Islands, but it wasn't written in their local language, Malay. It was written in Dutch, a language that this local leader could not read. It was a foul bit of double-dealing, but that's not even the worst of it. There was a clause in that contract that allowed the use of force by the Dutch to enforce that monopoly. Should anyone who was bound by that contract sell nutmeg or cloves or pepper to, say, the English or the Portuguese or anyone that wasn't the Dutch, they could be made to comply to the Dutch monopoly by force of arms. The Dutch could sail in and attack them for selling to anyone else. But then, there was a question of exactly who was bound by that contract. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Allow me a moment to paint a picture of maritime Southeast Asia around 1600. Now, most of the larger islands in the region belonged to one or another of the several different Islamic sultanates. There was, for example, in western Sunatra, the guy at Banda Ake, which James Lancaster met and cut a deal with. We talked about that last time. The Malakas Sultanate, probably the most powerful sultanate in the region, was up in Malaysia and Borneo. There were several other sultanates in the Philippines, there were a few on Java, they were all over the place. They all had their own politics and alliances, some were close to China, some to Portugal, some to the Netherlands, all of them were loosely allied with one another as well, but all of these powers encircled the Malaku Islands the Spice Islands. And 
While all of these different powers, including the Chinese and the Vietnamese, anyone who had an interest in the region, while they all had their own spheres of influence, they rarely built settlements, at least extensive settlements, on the Spice Islands. Occasionally, they would build a harbor or a factory or both, but rarely anything expansive. And the reasoning there is simple. Nutmeg trees are particular, especially about soil and climate, and they grow better on these few tiny islands than anywhere else in the world. These nutmeg groves are much more valuable than a city would be. Best just to leave them be and to let the locals who had been tending them for generations and knew how, best to leave them alone as well, to control the trade, but not the cultivation. So politically, most of the Spice Islands were not under the direct control of one or another of the powers in the region. Instead, they were governed by local elders, leaders called Arankaya. Some of these local leaders were merely leaders of a village. Some of them were more like governors, some of them more like warlords. But they remained independent, not only from the outside powers, but from each other. And that point is key. They were separate entities. You know, they shared language and culture and a region and often religion, but they had no political hegemony. And then, in the very center of the Malaku Islands was a smaller island group, inside the Malaku, but a subgroup within them. And on that small group of tiny islands is where nearly all of the nutmeg in the world was grown. And, you know, not because it couldn't grow elsewhere, but limiting it to these few very, very small islands allowed the Indonesians and then the Portuguese to control exactly where it was cultivated. This small group is called the Banda Islands. Pulo Rune and Pulo I, who have been trading with the English ever since 1601, were the smallest of the Banda Islands, but there were six other islands in the island group, and we're concerned with two of them today. The first is called Nira, of moderate size in relation to the other Banda Islands, but it lies directly north to the largest island in the Banda Islands, called Besar, or depending on who you ask, also called Lanthor or Great Banda. The Dutch admiral who carried the treaty in question, the one under whom Jan Cohen served on that first voyage, got that treaty signed by an Orangkaya on Nira in 1602. The Dutch chose to do this in a direct response from the 1601 opening of relations between the English and the Bondanese islands of Pulo Rune and Pulo I. But here's the thing. That treaty should have, according to the customs and laws of the Indonesian people, only applied to the Orangkaya in question, who only controlled a small part of the island of Nira. But the Dutch thought otherwise. One man in control of a small region had signed a treaty that he could not even read, but in their minds, in the Dutch mind, that applied to everyone on the island of Nira. Not only to everyone on Nira, but everyone in the Bandanese islands. Including, but not limited to, Great Banda 
and the English allied islands of Pulo Roon and Pulo I. Now, was this just a misunderstanding, a difference in cultures between the people of the Netherlands and Indonesia? Was it an honest miscommunication? Maybe there are those who have made the argument that it was just an honest miscommunication, a difference in culture between the Dutch and Indonesian people. Of course, that viewpoint is wrong, because that's obviously not the case, because it was obviously a deal made in bad faith from the very start. And I should point out that some of the people who made those arguments usually held doctorates, but does it count if your doctorate is from Oxford in Orientalism from 1895? No, no it doesn't, you're wrong, this was made in bad faith. And I think, as do most respectable modern historians, that the things that are about to follow show that pretty clearly. So, Jan Pieter Soon Cohen was there. He saw that treaty signed. He probably served on one or two more company voyages, but he was also there a few years later when Jan Cohen saw what has been dubbed the vile Bandanese treachery of 1609. On that voyage, Cohen was sailing under Admiral Pieter Verhoeven in April of 1609 when they arrived at Great Banda only to spy an English ship at anchor there. The English had been trading at Great Banda with some freedom. Remember, nobody on the largest of the Bandanese islands was bound by the contract signed by someone on Nera. So the English, when the Dutch arrived, were all smiles. But Verhoeven, the admiral, made it clear that the English were not welcome here, and if they continued to attempt to trade at Great Banda, they would be fired upon. The English captain, William Keeling, thought for a moment about fighting for it, but he didn't have the numbers or the power, so he weighed anchor and headed off to Pulo Roon, where he could buy his nutmeg in peace. Verhoeven was... well... I was about to say that he was angry, but I hesitate to say that. I don't want to put any emotions into his head. I don't want to ascribe any motivations for what's to come. What he did was land 250 soldiers on Great Banda, and he summoned all of the Orangkaya to the town square. That was a number of smaller local elders and sort of the governor of the entire island. He produced a copy of the contract that had been signed by a different Orangkaya on a different island, but this time he had a Malay translator there to explain the contract and the situation. These Orangkaya, and in fact all of the people of Great Banda, and in fact all of the people of the Banda Islands were, according to Verhoeven, bound by law to trade with nobody but the Dutch. Now that's not true, but it is hard to argue with 250 heavily armed soldiers. And as Verhoeven was making this proclamation, the island's volcano erupted. Let's play with some alternate history here. Say you live in California, Southern California, coastal Southern California, in 1944. We are busy at war with the Japanese, and all of a sudden, you spot on the horizon 
the largest armada that the world has ever seen. It's the Japanese, and they've come for your lands. They bombard the shoreline with the biggest naval guns in the world before landing an army of unprecedented size, made up of Chinese and Korean soldiers, and they tell your people, the governor in fact, that this is now Japanese territory. You might think about fighting, about resisting these invaders, when all of a sudden, the big one hits. An earthquake, a legendary earthquake. Some of the most populous land in all of the United States of America falls into the ocean. Thousands died in the Japanese bombardment and thousands more in this sudden and shocking act of God. Logically, you might know that this has nothing to do with the Japanese coming, but the illogical part of your mind might see that as a very, very bad omen. It might just break your will to resist. And if that wasn't enough, the Japanese landed another ten or twenty thousand soldiers on Californian soil. That's exactly what Verhoeven did, not ten or twenty thousand soldiers, but an additional five hundred men were landed on Great Banda, bringing the total to seven hundred and fifty. Verhoeven claimed a spot of land in the capital where he began to build a fort. This was not exactly unprecedented. The Portuguese had done similar things, but it was out of the ordinary. A harbor was one thing, but a fort was something else. This was a clear sign that the Dutch intended to enforce their contract, a contract that these people had never agreed to. So, the leaders of Great Banda knew that they had to make a deal. They asked Verhoeven to meet with them and negotiate something. They said that they were prepared to work something out here. And Verhoeven agreed. However, the Bandanese, the leaders, the Orangkaya, said that no contract signed at the point of a lance could be valid. They asked Verhoeven to come with his personal guard, enough men to defend him, of course, and his top merchants, they asked him to come to a clearing in the dense jungle far from his 750 soldiers. It was a sign of good faith, they said. Verhoeven, who was supremely confident in having already won the island, agreed to these terms and included Jan Pietersoon Cohen in this retinue. They arrived, as agreed, with only a light guard. Verhoeven sent Cohen in to scout out the clearing, and Cohen saw a few men peeking out from the trees, which he found suspicious. But these men came out into the clearing, and they were all old men, Orangkaya and unarmed. And now, reassured that there were in fact no soldiers, they asked Cohen to invite Verhoeven and his guard into the clearing where they could sit down and discuss terms. But it turns out that was all Cohen was there to do. It was far above his station to engage in negotiations like this. He would have to wait behind. So he stayed back in the tree line while Verhoeven and his guard and his top men went in to discuss terms with the Orangkaya. Cohen would later recount, quote, Being entered among them, Verhoeven found the woods replenished with armed blackamoors, Bandanese and Orangkaya, 
who instantly encircled them and without conference treacherously and villainously massacred him. End quote. They had darts and lances with poison tips. They had blades with which they cut off heads. It was a massacre. But I should make my biases well known here. I am fully on the side of the Bandanese. I think they were completely within their rights, and I think that, in a smaller situation, most juries would agree with me. The Dutch actions from the beginning here on Great Banda had been illegal and unethical. I mean, imagine somebody moves into your home, but they do so at gunpoint. They do so without permission. What would you do? What would you be within your rights to do? Personally, I think you should absolutely cut their head off and display it on your porch to make sure that nobody else tries to move into your home without permission. So let's play another alternate history game also on the West Coast, but this time in the modern day. Imagine that Japan, say, signed a deal with the state of Washington to reduce ocean plastic. That's a good deal. But then the Japanese show up a couple of years later in California, and they are demanding of the Californians to know why the Oregonians aren't adhering to the deal. And then the Californians, rightly, who signed no deal, kick them out. And then the Japanese come back, and they massacre thousands of Californians, and build a city where Los Angeles used to be. That's what was coming for the people of Great Banda. And just to be clear, despite having used the Japanese as the bad guys in two separate analogies, I bear the Japanese people and nation no ill will or bad blood. I think it's because I've been reading a history of Japan lately. But the people of Great Banda were facing a brutal retribution at the hands of none other than Jan Pietersun Cohen. He, having not been present at the actual meeting, was one of only a handful to escape the, quote, vile Bandanese treachery, and it shaped his opinions of the people of the Banda Islands. It, well, he saw them as murderous, backstabbing contract breakers. It also, though, cemented his opinion of the English, whom he hated. See, Cohen believed that the English captain, who had been chased off only a few days earlier, were behind the whole plot. He believed that they had snuck off and suggested that these Orangkaya do exactly what they did. And I don't think he was correct in that, but he might have been. But that really doesn't matter, because that's what Cohen believed. Back in Amsterdam, he would testify before the Governor's General of the VOC, and he would suggest that the company, quote, execute and practice all revenge possible, end quote. And that's exactly what they did. Sort of. Remember, this happened on Great Banda, but the Dutch sent a fleet instead to the island where that contract was signed, to Nera Island, and they set out on a campaign of torture and murder and rape and pillage and burning houses to the ground, all manner of violent excesses, a campaign so brutal that it would have made a buccaneer blush. Cohen was not present on that voyage, 
but he was promoted to senior merchant on his next trip, and in fact on that voyage he so impressed his captain that he was promoted to chief bookkeeper in 1613. Now, that might sound like a boring accountant's job, but that's essentially an on-site CFO. Imagine the CFO of Amazon, only Amazon has the U.S. Navy at their disposal. He wasn't crunching numbers, he was working with big-picture ideas. And in fact, during his time as chief bookkeeper, he produced a treatise entitled Discourse on the State of India that was really influential at the time and that impressed his superiors at the East India Company. That treatise outlined his plans for Asia, plans that he was allowed to undertake when he was promoted to Director General, the second-in-command in the islands of Spicery. Next time, we're going to conclude the story of Jan Pietersoon Cohen and his conquest, brutal as it was, of the Banda Islands and Southeast Asia. We're also going to bring the story of the Dutch East India Company and the English East India Company up to date with our overall narrative to 1686, where it's about to intersect with William Dampier, Charles Swan, and the crew of the Signet. I'd like to thank everyone for listening. I'd like to thank everyone who has helped to support the show. Everybody that has signed up to become a patron on Patreon, everybody who has helped out with donations through one of the other options on the website, everybody who has left us a rating or a review wherever it is you listen to the show, and everybody who has recommended this show online or in real life, without all of you, we wouldn't be able to do this. Thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com, or you can get in touch on Twitter, SoundCloud, Reddit, or YouTube. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening. Let him live on in legend tonight.